Yo, 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 everybody, it's Stretch Armstrong. And my name is Bobito Garcia, aka Cool Bob Love. If you love this podcast you are listening to, you should check out our new show, What's Good with Stretch and Bobito. This is not your average interview show. We're going to be telling stories that you're not going to hear anywhere else. Find it on Apple Podcasts, the NPR One app, or however you find your podcast. It's What's Good. Hey y'all, Sam Sanders here. It's been a minute. Every Tuesday on the show, we bring you a deep dive interview. Today, actress and writer and director Zoe Lister-Jones. She stars on the CBS sitcom Life in Pieces. She's also done theater on Broadway. And this summer, she put out a really, really good movie. It's her first movie as director. It is called Band-Aid. I liked it a lot. She stars in it. Also, Adam Pally stars in the movie as her husband, Probably know him from one of my favorite sitcoms of all time, Happy Endings, and also The Mindy Project. Uh, Another big name in this film, Fred Armisen. He plays their weird and hilarious neighbor in the movie. And Zoe did something really special during the filming of this movie. She made the film with an all-female crew. Super exciting. So we talk about that and diversity and hiring, which is really interesting. But we also talk a lot about acting and writing and directing and relationships because that's what her film, Band-Aid, is all about. Relationships. You guys ready? So in the film, Zoe's character is in this like marriage that's kind of stalled until she and her husband realize that they can make music about their fights. I'm in no mood for your mood. This is Zoe singing right now. And that's Adam Pally on a track called Mood. It's a bop. It's an earworm. Fred Armisen's playing drums. It's really cool. They actually recorded the songs that they made for the movie. They put all those tracks out for real. You can, like, buy these songs and listen to them. We'll talk about that in the conversation as well. Okay, I've said enough. Here is me in conversation with Zoe Lister-Jones. She was in New York. I was here in D.C. Her new film called Band-Aid is out now, and you should see it. Enjoy this chat. You're early. Am I early? You are. That's amazing. That's um, yeah, I am. I'm 10 minutes early. I know. Well, so I, I have this preconception that celebrities are just always late. <laughs> but I've had several convos now where the famous person is early or on time. Oh, gosh. Well, I feel like I'm not also not a celebrity, so maybe just, that's why I'm hey, on time. Hey, just speak it like it's true. It's done. <laughs> it's done. So it's funny. I was uh, going through your social media feeds, waiting for you just now. You have a really good Instagram. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm loving this photo of you and Jamie Foxx, <laughs> which you caption that backpack, though. Yes, that backpack was Is very it, cool. It's like a bejeweled, bedazzled backpack. What's it about? It's like a, um, what are those things? It's a studded backpack. It's like those old like punk rock belts and stuff, but they were on the backpack straps, which, of course, Jamie Foxx would have that backpack. Of course. Jamie Foxx feels like that guy you just want at your party. Yeah, no, he was very sweet. We were on... Um, uh, the Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon on the same So you are famous. Night. <laughs> That's as famous as I get. And um, <laughs> he came out and was like, oh, your segment was so funny. And I was so surprised that he even watched my segment. Um, and then, like, was asking, like, questions and just, like, had a, a regular human being conversation, which I was like, you're Jamie Foxx and you're also a human being? <laughs> 
That's so crazy. They're just like us. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of just like us, you, Zoe Lister Jones, have a very NPR name. <laughs> yeah, right? I'm, I'm I'm of the NPR hyphenate generation. That's right. I've always wanted my name to be a little more NPRish. It's kind of basic. No. Sam Sand. Eh, a little bit. I guess you've got like a a morning news kind of name. Yeah. I'm, I mean, my name is definitely commercial radio weather guy. Yeah. 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 Alas. Anyway. <laughs> we are here to discuss. Your movie, Band-Aid, which I just watched and I loved, loved, oh, loved. Thanks. I loved you and I loved your co-star in this, Adam Pally. Pally? Mm-hmm. Pally? Pally. Pally. Okay. Mm-hmm. How'd you find him? Uh, I had been aware of him as an actor for many years and had admired his work from afar. And we had met like a handful of times, like in passing at parties and stuff. And whenever we would see each other, um, there was sort of a kindred spirit vibe. Like there was a real ease to the way that we um, interacted. And and when I wrote the movie, uh, he came to mind after the screenplay was finished as someone who I thought would embody that character well. And, um, and I didn't even know that he played guitar when I offered him the part oh, wow. because uh, the movie is about a couple who make um, a band make a band and uh, and we played all the music live so um, him playing guitar was like this added bonus because he's actually a really good guitarist I love it you know he uh, there's some depth to him in this role and some pretty serious acting in some parts you know I know him from the Mindy Project from Happy Endings my favorite sitcom ever <laughs> so it was really cool to see this like different kind of depth from Adam Pally in your film Yeah. You know, I think that um, comedians generally have a lot of access to deeper and darker places, Mm. but can be limited in the roles that they're given because, you know, you you start to kind of get a little typecast. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I was really excited to to get to shine a light on his other sides because he is a, a really talented dramatic actor as well. Totally. I love that. Well, let's talk about your movie. Um, for those listening who haven't watched it yet, pause this right now, go watch the movie. It's so good. <laughs> and then come back to this conversation. But a real quick synopsis with no spoilers. The film's about a couple. They've, they're married. They've been together for, what, like a decade or so since they were young. Uh, now they're not so young. All of their friends are having babies, and that puts some pressure on their relationship. Uh, there are lots of other tensions as well. So they fight a lot, but they realize when they play music together, they don't fight. And in fact, they decide to make music about their fights. Where did that idea come from? Is that like from your life? Um, no, not not directly from my life. But I think music has always been really important for me as a listener and a very sort of therapeutic art form. And then I started writing lyrics in college and uh, and was in a band as a singer in college. And, Ooh, what, what kind of band? Uh, it was like a glam rock sort of yes, like <laughs> tongue-in-cheek yes, performance yes. art-based band. Can you give me some of your song titles from the band? I wasn't the front woman. I was a backup singer. Um, Their loss. Yeah. Uh, they were pretty raunchy songs, I'm going to be honest. Um, and then I think my husband and I, uh, we often like would go to karaoke. Like We'd get a karaoke room, just the two of yeah. us, and sing to like blow off steam. And so I think that I understood it um, as a tool, uh-huh. both in my personal life and, and and in my relationship, but never to the extent of writing actual songs that are based on your fights. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I thought it was a good idea. It was a very good idea. Yeah. Makes for a whole movie. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> What's your favorite karaoke song? You mentioned karaoke. 
I like a little Tina Turner. Yeah, you do. Uh, but it's a hard. That's a hard one to sing. True. Um, you know, this is random, but I like I like Ten Thousand Maniacs. Candy. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> you know, I'm just it, my voice is in the pocket in that one, and I love that's it. all karaoke is about. I love it. So my go-to is Salt and Pepper's "Push It." Okay. Because that wow. song honestly has like 12 words. That's a high-energy karaoke performance. And there's no singing. I can just talk real loud. Are you dancing? Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, hell yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what I love about your movie is the real and raw way you depict fights in couples. Like the opening scene, there's this fight over who is or is not washing the dishes. And you guys end up just yelling back and forth to each other over and over again the F word. Mm-hmm. Like, it's <laughs> brilliant, but it's also like, yeah, that's real. That's really real. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I think one of the m- more gratifying responses I've been getting from the film uh, when I've been showing it to audiences is is that couples come up to me and say, like, these are exactly our mm-hmm. fights. Like, how did you know? And mm-hmm. I think that there is a sort of, like, relief in knowing how universal the fights that we're all having are, even though when you're having them in your own relationship, they feel so specific to you and your partner, but that, like, they kind of tend to be about all the same BS. Um, Yeah, yeah. And I think that part of, like, what I wanted to do with this film, even just as a writer, was unpack why we're all having the same fights and why we can't, like, crack the code. Yeah, and it's, like, ultimately... Fights are always about what, like three things, like communication, sex, and dishes. It's like <laughs> that's pretty much it, right? Yeah, I think so. I think that covers it. Yeah, you know, you do this really interesting thing in the movie where the actors have to grapple with whether or not they choose to escalate the argument, and what happens when you do or when you don't. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that like there's this idea that like. When you come up against conflict with a partner, you know, you should walk away, which I do try to like both my husband and I try to do because so often then like the fight just becomes about the fight. And mm-hmm. you're like talking about like, well, you just said this. Well, you just said this. And then it like it's just a distraction from the yeah. actual issues at hand. It's like just wash um, the dish. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it would be easier to just wash the damn dish. But I think in the movie, you know, like the couple is kind of keeps having the same fight over and over again. And they're also both in a state of like paralysis in their lives as a couple, as artists. And um, and the fights are are kind of where they're funneling their rage. But you know some of it is misdirected like there's so much that they're that they're both struggling with that they're not processing properly exactly. and so it's flaring up in these other ways and so the the story is really about how they learn to actually process those things with each other and and apart yeah and like in the film you have this kind of motif of a drip there's a mm-hmm. drip being this and then something else drips at the end and for me it kind of symbolizes like there's always going to be stuff giving you grief in your life there's always going to yes. be stuff to fight about Either you learn how to talk about the drip constructively or you fix the drip. But even if you yeah. fix the drip, there's going to be another drip. <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly. like yeah, it the, continues. Yeah. yeah, I think that that is, you know, this is a love story that to me is about real love, which is not the sort of like manic falling in love, like craziness. And it's also not the falling out of love. It's that middle stage that... Um, that is so often about work, you mm-hmm. know, that yeah. it's hard to remember that that's also love. Um, 
and maybe the deepest form of love. Exactly. Uh, so yeah, I mean, the drip is a is a common theme, and and you nailed the metaphor on the head. And the band, uh, there's a a song at the end that that is over the credits that is called "Love Is a Drip." Love which is a drip. You can download on iTunes. Oh, yeah. I've been jamming to that. Let's talk about the band. Uh, You call the band from the movie The Dirty Dishes. Mm -hmm. Uh, You recruit your neighbor in the film uh, to be the drummer. That's Fred Armisen. He, like, steals every scene he's in. (laughs) Talk about the band, how it came to be, and how this band actually exists in the real world. Well, um, I wrote all the songs as part of the screenwriting process. I I wrote the lyrics, and then I collaborated with a friend of mine named Kyle Forrester on the music. And then... uh, recorded demos, and then Adam and I started rehearsing them, um, just the two of us, in the months leading up to production. Fred didn't need any rehearsal because he's, like, he's an Fred. amazing drummer. <laughs> yeah. um, and then we played all the music live in the film, which was super fun, um, but scary. because That I learned, is scary. Yeah. I learned bass for the movie, so that Whoa. was particularly scary. <laughs> oh, my goodness. You sounded great. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it was also so fun, you know, to have the sort of electricity of live performance really captured on screen. Um, and then since the movie, we recorded an album and put out an EP as The Dirty Dishes. And we've played a few live gigs, which has been crazy it. and fun. And, uh, and yeah, it's so fun that the band gets to live on outside of yeah. the, the world of the movie. Yeah. Mood is my jam. <laughs> I love that <laughs> song. You. It's just delightful. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, my favorite, most poignant part of the movie, um, and I forget who says what first, but there's this interchange between your character and Pally's character where one of you says, well, failing makes you a failure. And the other one says, failure makes you an artist. Mm-hmm. Um, seems like you can relate to that. Um, like, all, like all artists can relate to it, I guess. Well, I think... I was raised by two artists, um, and I, I think they've made incredible work, but I don't think they ever had the reception that they deserved, and they were never able to make a living from their work. And I think um, growing up, the sort of heartache that comes with pursuing a life as an artist was mm-hmm. very real for me. Uh, and then when I decided to pursue a life in the arts, of course, I've you know had to face a lot of rejection and a lot of sort of sense of personal failings. And um, and I think that that is just so, so commonly the artist's struggle, like um, how not to be paralyzed by exactly that rejection. Yeah. Well, and then also being prepared to make art, knowing that no matter how good it is, someone's going to hate it. Totally. And that's just the hardest part. I mean, like we're like we're making this show and we think it's going to be pretty damn good. Yeah. But without fail, someone on Twitter or in the iTunes review or wherever is going to be like, mm-hmm. this show is the worst thing ever. Yeah. 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 How do you deal with that? Well, there was a while when I wasn't reading any of my Twitter mentions. <laughs> <laughs> and on this film, I was careful. Um, I haven't read most of the reviews i there were like but they're two, pretty good two that i read but but they have been overwhelmingly good which is great but i i do think it's dangerous you know i mean this film for me was like a challenge to see if i could really focus on finding joy in the work itself mm. rather than mm. spending a lot of time letting fears around how the work would be received like influence the creative process. I like that a lot. So I've been trying even in its release to still kind of stay on that that page and um 
And I think, you know, like obviously there are going to be haters for everything. And I think it's it's it really always has to boil down to whether or not you're proud of your own work. And if you are, then that's awesome. And if you're not, then that's a great, you know, test and a challenge for you to grow. Yeah. As someone on the Internet somewhere once said, they hate us because they ain't us. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty good. I forgot to ask you, what kind of art did your parents do? My mom's name is Ardell Lister, and she is a video artist. And my dad's name is Bill Jones, and he uh, is a conceptual photographer. That sounds so cool. They they make really cool work. They continue to make cool work, yeah. Did you say somewhere that your parents did not really make a living from their art? Yeah. So then what did they do instead? I mean, I, like your character in the movie is a writer, but also like an Uber driver. Were yes. your parents doing some things like that? My mom... Uh, is a professor at Rutgers University. So not an Uber driver. (laughs) No. um, She's been teaching there for over 25 years um, in the video department. And that's like, she teaches video art in the art department. But that is like the holy grail for an artist. But most artists do look to, like fine artists or media artists, look to teaching gigs. Mm -hmm. And while they're still like in the world of creating, my observation is that it very much takes away from their own creative energy Mm. and that a lot of sacrifices are made. Mm. Um, And also like teaching at like a, a, you know, especially like at a state university, there's like a lot of bureaucracy, you know, it's not just like going and being like, let's make art with students. Um, It's the faculty senate and the student code of conduct. It's all of that. Yeah. So, and my dad, he, he hopped from different jobs. He was working in art magazines for a while. Um, there was a moment where he was a telemarketer. Whoa, 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 stop. He, yeah. What did he telemarket? You know, I don't even remember. Oh. Uh, it was a dark, it was a dark period. Um, <laughs> and now he's in a really different field, uh, which is uh, like cancer research. Wow. Um, but he still makes art. Wow. And both my parents do. Um but yeah, I mean, I think that there were a lot of sacrifices made, for sure. So what did you take from that, having to see your parents, two artists, make sacrifices to continue to make a living and, you know, hopefully make their art too? How did that inform the way you live your life and balance, you know, the art with the work? Uh, well, I think it made me really afraid to be an artist. <laughs> huh. Huh. As a kid, I think I, I was really aware of the struggle and I, I didn't want to I, I didn't want that struggle to be a part of my own story as mm-hmm. I as I became an adult. And so like when I got a scholarship to NYU for acting, I was apprehensive to go there because I didn't want to put all my eggs into uh. one basket. And my mom was actually like, no, you should, which is a total, like, role reversal. Generally, when a kid wants to pursue art, their their parents are like, (laughs) no. Don't do it. (laughs) um, But this time I was like, I don't think I should. And she's like, no, you should. But I've been so blessed to actually be able to make a living from from my art. Um, And so that's been amazing for me just, like, on a soul level to to see that it's possible. Yeah. And I think, you know, it brings my parents, obviously, a lot of pride. Yeah. Hashtag blessed. So had you not, <laughs> had you not done acting, what would, you, what would you have done to have the safe route? What would you have majored in? 
I mean, you know, I think the thing about artists is like they can pretend that they're going to do something else. But if you're like really an artist, if it's in you, it's in you. You got it. Yeah, the hunger's there, and you can't let it go. Yeah. I, I, I was. I really loved writing. Like I did a lot of creative uh-huh. writing um, as a adolescent and teenager, and and. I think there was a part of me that thought about pursuing that or pursuing journalism. I really have no idea. I was the editor-in-chief of my high school newspaper, which was called The Murrow Network. Love it. I'm a very good editor. Okay. So I was really good at, like, being an editor. (laughs) Will you edit me? We're we're in need of an editor. (laughs) Sure. Those are hard skills to have because editing is, like— you got to know how to write and how to critique at the same time. And it's like navigating people's personalities. Yeah, totally. the best editors know how to tell you what you wrote sucks, but still <laughs> make you think that they believe in you. And yeah. that's hard. You're like part counselor therapist. Yeah, which is a similar skill set to directing. <laughs> how so? Well, like because you have to be able to like tell someone to change something they're doing yeah. but do it in a way that inspires them to actually do it yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. Um, yeah. so that and and to sort of make them feel like it's almost their idea yeah yeah well you did a good job of it oh thanks yeah <laughs> all right time for a quick break here we'll be right back with more from Zoe Lister Jones about her movie and how she made it with an all female crew BRB <laughs> Support for It's Been a Minute and the following message come from the Platinum Card from American Express. There's a great big world out there, and no other card lets you experience it like the Platinum Card, backed by the service and security of American Express. Support also comes from Simply Safe Home Security. Simply Safe makes everything about home security effortless, from having no long-term contract, which keeps you in charge, to sophisticated wireless technology that makes setup a breeze. With 24/7 professional alarm monitoring and police dispatch, your home stays safe around the clock. Right now, Simply Safe is having its biggest ever summer sale. For a limited time, get $100 off Simply Safe's special summer package. This sale ends soon. Visit simplysafenpr.com. I'm Linda Holmes. And I'm Stephen Thompson. There's more stuff to watch and read these days than any one person can get to. That's why we make Pop Culture Happy Hour. Twice a week, we sort through the nonsense, share reactions, and give you the lowdown on what's worth your precious time and what's not. Find Pop Culture Happy Hour on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. So this film is all about relationships, hetero man-woman relationships. Uh, And there's this moment in your film where, like, the lesson is laid out for all of us is when Susie Essman, who plays Ben's mom, she kind of has this monologue with him where she breaks down kind of the gender tension in hetero relationships. Mm -hmm. And she gets at this idea that women can never really turn their brains off and men are almost way too quick to always do just that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so hormonally, we are just completely different creatures. Might as well be completely different species. You see us as overly emotional, and that's true. We're constantly juggling a lot of feelings and anxieties. We have difficulty separating ourselves from our problems. Do you understand? Like, like we're constantly looking for the connective tissue to find a solution. We obsess. We search for emotional cues so that we could figure out the meaning behind the unspoken. 
It's not pretty in there. <laughs> that was really that was really poignant. I mean, that is that's a big grand theory of the way this stuff works. Well, I guess I guess the representation of women on screen is something that I've always been really aware of. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I guess part of me, whether it was intentional or not as a message, I think part of me was interested in unpacking the sort of pathology of what a lot of women go through because I think so many of the stereotypes that you often see on screen like play on that stuff but they never actually give it weight or Mm -hmm. meaning in a way that I think would like lead to empathy or understanding it's always kind of like oh she's the nag or she's um hysterical or all of these sort of archetypes that women have fallen into Mm -hmm. over history. And so I guess I was looking into those archetypes and kind of seeing how to distill them without oversimplifying them. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And, and, And I think that the way that women often relate to men in relationships, you know, it has a lot to do with with all of those things, which are, you know, she goes on to then talk about what men are like um and and i think that men and women are are truly such distinct creatures and to put us in relationship <laughs> uh-huh. um is going to inevitably bring up all of those differences and oftentimes th- those differences are going to come into conflict so i i guess for me just personally it was like about how to to try and crystallize what those differences were um as a means to maybe bridge them yeah it worked. <laughs> it made sense to me. <laughs> you know, speaking of women, you made this movie, Band-Aid, with a 100% female crew. Yeah. That's like the first time ever in history? I think on a feature, yeah. I think it is. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, where did the idea come from and how hard was it to do? Well, I, I'll, I'll blame it on my mother, <laughs> um, <laughs> who is a feminist and raised raised me to be a feminist. Yeah. And... Um, you know, she's also a, fe- a feminist media artist. So I think just the general lens through which I've viewed the world throughout my life is one that is pretty focused on like gender inequity and being an actress in front of the camera and then also being a writer and producer behind the camera. In my career so far, I was pretty aware of how underrepresented women were on film and TV crews. And, um, so I just figured that this was my opportunity being at the helm to to change that and to create more opportunities for women. And I also just like really wanted to see what it would feel like to make a movie with all women. Yeah. Like I, I think it's a really special energy that ensues when women are together and uh, and it exceeded all of my expectations. It was really one of the the more spectacular mm. experiences of my life. So what did it feel like? What was it like on a set where there's all ladies? Um, you know, it was it was very calm. <laughs> That's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, which is what you really want on a set. Like every actor who came on would just be like, it doesn't even feel like it was so calm, but it was all, it was also so efficient. And I think mm. it's like it's those two things in partnership that mm-hmm. make an incredible crew. You know, yeah. Um, because it doesn't you don't want anyone to feel like this is uh you know that the task is like herculean or whatever but you you want the the work to be getting done so um i think that was a big thing i think it was a very supportive um and like nurturing energy um that like no one it didn't ever feel like anyone was just in charge of their task even though 
each one woman was very much like you know had a singular vision, but it just felt very communal in the way yeah. that that we worked together, which yeah. was really amazing. I think you told Time Magazine that it was like no woman was apologizing for taking up space. That's yeah. beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. How did the men feel? The men, the, like the male actors. Yeah. Well, for many many days, Adam Pally was the only man on set. Um, oh wow. And he uh, loved it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he 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 talks about it now as a, a life-altering experience, wow. and 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 I think um, Fred too. I think both of them. What was so nice was that both of them now speak about it, especially Adam, as um, an experience that he wants to continue to pursue in his career, and and he's a producer in his own right. So I think you know to have someone want to continue to hire all female crews is a huge success in in the narrative yeah totally you know i i was thinking today i was like i wonder what an all-black film crew would look like or feel like or like an all-black newsroom totally and i was like one it'd be a party (laughs) (laughs) two it'd just be like you know even with like there'd be no need for explanation of anything yeah i think it's you know I think that there's that thing of like the dynamics um, that are sort of inevitable and unspoken yeah. that happen both in in within racism and within sexism um, that you have to deal with on a daily basis. Are it's like to to be on a set that is free of any of those dynamics is hugely freeing. Yeah, it's like and weightlessness. Totally, totally. Um, and, and I was actually talking to someone about this today. Did Spike Lee ever do an oh, all-black no, film crew? I think he did. Also, Tyler Perry tried that for a long time. Oh, really? Yeah. And, and succeeded at it? Like, Yeah. Well, all those Medea movies, I think the early ones especially, he made it a point to make them either mostly black or all-black. That's cool. But I'm sure it must be a different vibe. And I mean... Totally. And like, yeah, I mean, I... I wonder, though, like when you're doing something like an all black this or an all woman this, Mm -hmm. did you get a lot of questions or pushback or challenge from folks saying, well, clearly all the women you had here can't all have been the most qualified to do this work or Mm -hmm. something like that? Did that happen? Yeah, totally. I mean, and I think that that is the thing that continues to make diversity in hiring practices remain like uncommon you yeah, know like yeah. because i think so many people who are in the positions to make those hires are uh under the impression that if they do hire someone that isn't you know like a white man <laughs> um that's a risk because they're going to have less experience and and i had to confront that too and so did my female department heads like you know, you it's a high-stakes situation, so everyone wants to make sure that they're in the best hands, that exactly. they have people who are going to bring their vision to life um, seamlessly. But I think, you know, we all had to step outside our comfort zones, especially in certain departments. Mm-hmm. Like, we had plenty of very qualified women, but they're, you know, in, in like, camera and, and lighting and, mm. and electricians. Like, those are so heavily male-dominated departments uh, yeah. that... That in those departments, we really did have to to say, okay, well, she might have less experience, and that might be a risk, but that's a risk that we are all going to be willing to take um, because, like, we have to. Yeah. Otherwise, th- this is never – we're never going to break down these barriers. Exactly. And so now what's nice is that, like, a lot of these women who, by the way, were all incredible mm-hmm. and, like, and, like, even the people who – 
did have less experience on the page, like those people are going to work ten times harder. Oh yeah, to prove their worth exactly. Um, and and are that much hungrier. And now, you know, hopefully this movie will open more doors for those women who now do have, you know, this added credit on their resume. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's so funny thinking about diversity and experience, especially. Experience is so often used in so many sectors mm-hmm. as a reason to not hire diversity. And, like, when you're dealing with people from marginalized groups, they're much more likely to be shut out of the networks that would give them the experience. And so yeah. they're in this catch-22 where they don't have the experience, but they only get the experience if you give them the job so they can get the experience. Exactly. Yeah. And 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 I think that there's like a beauty in mentorship, you know, yeah. like too like like if you're hiring someone who who is smart and motivated but mm-hmm. might not have been on this many sets as compared to the other person mm-hmm. who, you know, is smart and vo- and motivated um but has been on, you know, 100 sets, then like there's, I, th- I found that the mm-hmm. people that were more experienced took those less experienced people under their wings exactly. in a way that was so beautiful. And I think it was beautiful for both people. Like, it wasn't a burden to say, like, here's how, how you do it. Exactly. Um, and those people picked it up so quickly that it, it didn't, you know, it wasn't like it slowed us down. Yeah. So this was also the first film that you directed yourself. How was that? Yeah, I took a risk on myself. That was the first risk I took. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Which also, like, was, you know, I think that was also a part of it is, like, that I I had the humility to know that I was going to be learning. Mm. So why couldn't other people be learning, you know? Um, It was amazing. It was was really fun. It was, you know, making movies, especially independent movies, is really hard work, but... um, but I just thought it was so creatively enriching to wear all those hats. Like I, I really thought that they that writing and directing and acting and producing all really complemented each mm. other in the creative process. Yeah, totally. Let's talk about your backstory for a little bit. Give me your life story in two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was born in Brooklyn. Okay, we're in Brooklyn. Actually, I was born in Manhattan. Ah, uh, where in uh, Manhattan? I, I was born at the Lenox Hill Hospital. Okay. Um, but then I, I moved to Brooklyn when I was two with, with my parents. Nice. And I lived in um, South Park Slope, which is kind of oh, board, that's a beautiful bordering Sunset Park. Yeah. yeah, my part of Park Slope wasn't beautiful, but <laughs> okay. Park Slope generally is beautiful. Which is why I always like qualify it with South Park Slope. Um, <laughs> the rough part of Park Slope. It was kind of the rough part, especially in the 80s. Yeah. But yeah, yeah and, then, and then I... Uh, I went to NYU to Tisch School of the Arts and studied acting. And uh, when I graduated, I wrote a one-woman show that I put up at a an off-off-Broadway theater, and that's how I got my first agent and manager. And um, and then I I've you know worked on Broadway and off-Broadway and, and TV, and um, and then started making uh, films with my husband that we wrote. And produced together um, that I would act in and he directed. Yeah, that's yeah. really interesting. Talk mm-hmm. more. So, like, you and your husband, and, and I've been reading up on you, you know, you, you've talked, both of you have talked about working together in the way that you guys have for years now. Um, it's kind of hard to turn off the personal and professional, and it all bleeds together. How do yeah. you navigate that? It's a challenge. I mean, you know, we're making work with a romantic partner, I think, is really 
fulfilling like because you know after you've been with a person for a long time like there's not that much else to talk about um <laughs> so you, you just constantly have thing something that you're creating together it's, yeah. it's really exciting yeah but but yeah as you said it, it's um it's hard to draw boundaries especially in in independent filmmaking when it is really a 24-hour job so how would you draw boundaries I mean, we started we started like setting things like after 11 p.m. We couldn't talk about work, but like after 11 p.m., you, <laughs> you, we're like going to sleep. So we, there were very very few <laughs> boundaries. Um, but no, I mean, we even when we now are working separately from each other, we still have to kind of do it and say like, okay, now today this is this is a day where we're not going to talk about work. Yeah, and. I think it is really healthy to set those boundaries. I think both of us have felt a lot of relief in being able to to do that more. Yeah, totally, mm-hmm. totally. I'm going to let you go soon. Okay. It is, what, f- about to be 4.30 on a Friday afternoon. Yeah. Had you not been in this dark, cold studio, how would you have been enjoying a sunny, bright New York afternoon? Well, I'm only here for a few days, and my parents are both here, so I think after this, I will go see my parents. And tonight, um, we have Q&As for Band-Aid screenings. We have two of them, one in Brooklyn and one in Manhattan. So I'm going to head over there and uh, and hustle. You are hustle. <laughs> I, I was looking. You have been – you are doing the work when it comes to press for this movie. You're yeah. working. You're hustling. Yeah, I'm working. I'm yeah. working. Yeah. yeah. You have to, especially when it's like your baby. That's you know? true. But it's also – not every movie is privileged enough to get press, so mm. I don't take any of these press opportunities for granted. I'm I'm always really excited to 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 hop to it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate the time, and I love the movie, and I I wish you the best with the film and everything. Thank you so much. It was so nice to talk to you. NPR named Zoe Lister Jones. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Zoe Lister-Jones. She was the best. Uh, Check out Band-Aid. It's a really good film. I liked it a lot. Also, check out music from the band in the movie. They're called The Dirty Dishes. Their EP with music from the film is also great. And if you like the podcast, and I hope you do, do us a favor. Leave a review on iTunes. That helps other folks find the show. Also, subscribe. And just tell your friends about the show. Please, pretty please for me. And I tell you what. If you find me on Twitter and at a friend who got into the show because of you or you personally request them to listen to the show on Twitter and where I can see it, I will get in that conversation, tweet you guys back with an animal gif or a haiku or a Kanye lyric or all of the above. Something will happen. I'll reach out. All right. All right. Do not forget to share a recording of your voice telling me the best thing from your week. Send me the audio to samsanders at npr.org. We might use that in our Friday episodes. All right, we're back Friday with our weekly wrap. I'm Sam Sanders. Thank you for listening. Talk soon. <laughs>